Welcome to Life of Die, the podcast which discusses all things role-playing game and wargaming related. Today I'm joined by two epic legends, Peter Ramos and David McDonald, both of whom have collaborated together to create a new system for 6mm Warhammer 40,000 called Imperius Dominatus. Welcome to Life of Die, both. Thanks, Gordon. Hey, guys. Thanks for coming on to talk about this. So I thought probably the best place to start would be to ask about your own histories with Epic and why you love it so much. Well, I guess uh, since uh, David already said that I had an answer first, <laughs> I will go first. Well, most know me as uh, Primark, also as the Net Epic coordinator. I've been around Epic for as long as Epic has been around. So that's about 32 years going on now. Uh, starting with Adeptus Titanicus, released back in 1989. Uh, the way I got into Epic was perhaps the way most people get through 40K, although back then it was Rogue Trader. I remember I went into a hobby store and I bought the Slaves of Darkness book, which a lot of old hands remember. It's still a highly sought out, sought after uh, book from the old days that covers the 40K universe as well as some uh, fantasy elements as well. And I started with Rogue Trader. I was very captured by the narrative of the universe. I always was kind of uh, unhappy with it because my background is more in mass combat from before that, like historicals and micro armor. But at that point, the Games Workshop only had the skirmish game, so I started with that. But as soon as uh, Adeptus Titanicus came out and then the first edition of Space Marine, I pretty much remember seeing the ads for that not in a white dwarf, but in Dragon Magazine, which you know I actively role play a, a lot back then. And no sooner had I read the ad, I was pretty much hooked. I mean, I like the universe, I like mass combat. So basically, sight unseen without playing the game or anything, I promptly sold all my Rogue Trader stuff, included uh, all those miniatures for skirmish game and whatnot, and invested in Epic. And as the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> what about yourself, David? For myself. Myself, we had a couple of good friends in high school. We used to play all the time, and I would have, I actually owned all the armies, and they would just use my figures, but we would have two games a week. And then later on, we started playing with a campaign with several guys, and we would play on this ping pong table, and we would play three or four times a week. We were pretty crazy. Like his wife got tired of us coming on over all the time. <laughs> and I remember when they canceled Games Workshop, they canceled Epic, and my friend, owned a distributing company that wholesale games workshop products. He said, Dave, we're closing off this line. Do you want to get anything at bargain prices? We're clearing them out for a buck fifty a blister. <laughs> nice. So I went in there and I bought everything they had, which was eight hundred blisters, and I split it with my buddies. And all the boxes of infantry were like five bucks or something. Just basically cleaned the guy out of his epic. So he was happy. He got rid of his stock. He wasn't carrying anymore. And we hunted around for different stores. We were buying Hellbores for 10 bucks at the Silver Snail down in Toronto. (laughs) Yes, I remember well the Great Purge of 1997 after the the third edition got released and it didn't do commercially well. So yeah, I got, much like David, I picked up a lot of stuff at unbelievable prices yeah the only re- thing i regret was not buying them all because they only they had like five capital imperialises for 10 bucks each and i didn't have enough cash so i didn't buy the rest but Ooh, that hurt. and they were in those old plastic boxes that would kill you if you tried to open them wrong right <laughs> so but now i think well, i have no one's really seen my whole collection but 
give Peter a rival of his old collection for about I don't know about sixty percent or seventy percent of what he had. Wow! But I have I have more armies than you do though. I have Necrons and Tau and other forces that I didn't see you. As they say, the king is dead. Long live the king. I mean, not me. The Primarch load holder anymore, but there are many contenders to the throne, and David McDonald is one of them. So we figured at twenty thousand points to thirty thousand points is the armies I try to build. Oh, man. <laughs> not not enough. <laughs> oh, mine's a poor by comparison, but um, yeah, I mean, for them that doesn't know, maybe you want to say about how big your collection was, Peter. I guess I should kind of fill in because you know everybody remembers that I coordinating that epic for 20 years but i guess a lot more people just remember the primarch load and as most things of that nature it just starts you don't wake up one day and says hey yeah i'm gonna make the largest epic collection in the world no you know it never starts that way <laughs> it's just that back then I used to run a little hobby shop so obviously you get things at a at a, at a retailer's discount so you would stock the store with what you needed to stock with and you keep some for yourself and little by little, things start getting bigger and bigger. And I guess much like as David said, when the game went out of print around 1999, a lot of people would just give their stuff to me. I mean, not even sell it. They said, oh, yeah, this nobody plays this anymore. So here have this whole bunch of plastic uh, miniatures and metal miniatures and whatnot. And, of course, Games Workshop at one point in time even sold Gargants for $5 when they were getting rid of their stuff, much as what uh, David explained. So things mushroomed a lot during that period. And before I knew it, when I started taking stock of what I had, I mean, it was really large. And of course, you know, the Epic community is pretty tight knit. So people talk to each other. And I realized around that time that I had a little bit more <laughs> than what most people had. And then it sort of became this self-sustaining myth after a while. Uh, I think you just sort of went with it, right? You just sort of went with it for fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at a certain point, uh, fan-made stuff started appearing, so I started picking up that as well. But then it, it always comes to the point of like, you know, wh why do you have all this? What are you going to do with it? And that came, became the realization for me. And, and to be very candid about it, I wasn't all that happy about how some of the stuff looked because I, I don't tend to be a very nostalgic person as it goes. Yeah. You know, I learned it when it was this era. So I like it that way. and don't change much. I tend to always like the new and up and coming things. So I kind of visualized this uh, period as, Oh, it's a good idea to just get rid of all this stuff. And then I'll just collect the more recent stuff. So currently I'm I'm kind of in with Adeptus Titanicus models. So those are really pretty. I always wanted something that was at scale and kind of concentrating more on, on 30K. So that's kind of the reason for letting go of the Primark load now. And, and to be, again, very candid, I mean, why keep stuff in my house when so many gamers out there really need stuff to complete their collections and they're actually going to use it. So, you know, it's a was kind of a, a component that as I grew older, I got less like a dragon <laughs> hoarding everything needlessly. And I said, ah, you know. Yeah. So I just I just let it all go. You see, I, I played Epic a long time ago, and then I sort of dropped it, not did anything with it. I kept all the mo models for about, I don't know, 15 years. And I played Napoleonics in 6 mil and Club in Toronto, and I helped design rules with them, which are published by um, Bacchus now. And... Um, Franklin Pierce. Yeah, that is a good company for six millimeter stuff. Yeah, so that's what I did. I've been in that Napoleon Ice Club for 30 years. 
And so I've been back and forth, historical science fiction. And when I met Peter, I started uh, looking at all the new firmware and which is all banned now and hard to get. But all the modern stuff that Games Workshop that has produced for the last 25 years for 40K and 30K, which all the new models are in Epic and it'd be like we never had any um, rules for them. So decided to fix that. That's how we got into the Imperial Salmonatus. Yeah, I guess we're getting into the next question now. There, Gordon. <laughs> yeah, we are. Before we do, I do want to say thanks, Peter, for that for having that horde. Because when I was growing my collection, <laughs> and it was getting bigger and bigger. When you posted that up on on Tactical Command, when I remember when I showed that, I showed it to my wife and I said, "Look, I'm not that bad. Look, look at this." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have been thanked by many people, just such as yourself, for the same reason. They said, look, honey, my addiction ain't so bad. Look at this guy. <laughs> so that was very helpful for my, for my marriage. Thanks for that. <laughs> yes, no doubt. Unfortunately, you can't use that as an excuse anymore. The only thing is, did it work? It did work, it worked perfectly. Yeah. It <laughs> but, um, <laughs> fortunately, I don't feel, I know I don't have everything in Epic, and I think it's, pretty hard to have everything in it but i've got most of the stuff that i want now so i know some people will be horrified you never finish your epic collection but i do feel like i've got most of the things that I want. it's really hard to do that there are some things only available on mail order for a short time and the, those are really hard to get yeah unfortunately a lot of the things that games worship did releasing the game uh and especially in the waning years was suboptimal i mean like for example a lot of the more rare stuff like uh Psy, Titan Kicks, and whatnot were available through uh, Games Workshop, but they weren't widely publicized. And the window was relatively narrow, no more than a couple of months or maybe a year at most. So if you kind of missed that out, which was e very easy to do, mm. you know, you basically missed out. But, you know, it's kind of unfortunate. But at least with the sale of the Primer Cloud, I know a lot of people uh, filled out the odds and ends the way they wanted to. And, and, and there's a certain satisfaction in that, at least it served the purpose because I know people will play with their things far more than what I did. Yeah, that's a great thing. But anyway, as you mentioned, Imperius Dominatus is what we're here to talk about. And it's a rule set that you've designed and your system for Epic Warhammer 40,000. So I suppose, how did you come to work together? Um, because I know these are separated by at least a time zone. And I believe you're in different countries. Is that right? Yes, David's in Canada and I'm in Oklahoma in the U.S. We're separated by an, about an hour uh, in the time zones. Well, again, nobody wakes up one day and says, hey, let's make a new epic system, brand new, with no new, new rules and new mechanics and everything. If you've been around me for a long time, especially in the years of, the, of coordinating that epic, you always knew that I had a certain dissatisfaction with the rules as they are. In fact, the Net Epic Gold was pretty much the culmination of that rule set. And the covenant between me and the gaming community was that we would finally make a stable version of those rules. And in case people didn't know, that was the fifth revision of the Net Epic rules. So there was an evolution that took about a decade to the point where we made uh, Net Epic Gold. And I understand and I have to respect those who are not really interested in, you know, just modifying the rules and further than they are. They're comfortable where they're at. Their forces are constructed under the paradigm of net epic and whatnot. So I think it was important at the time to say, okay, this is 
the ultimate expression of these rules. We're not going to fool around with them anymore because people uh, like a certain baseline stability in their chosen rule set. And it will be basically made available in perpetuity through the website, which is netepic.org. And that's what we've done. And that's what we accomplished. And a lot of people like that. People like that because they don't want to learn new rules all the time. That's why sometimes Games Workshop with all the different editions gets criticized each time put a new edition out. They don't, want, they don't want to change rules all the time. Yeah, exactly. It's it's human nature to uh, sometimes resist change. And sometimes, let's be honest, you know, not all change is good. And sometimes there's change for the sake of change. But now, one thing is, because I always keep separate what I believe is the good of the Epic community at, as a whole and what Peter Ramos likes. And I always keep those two silos separate because I think NetEpic is something larger than just myself. A lot of people put a lot of work into it, a lot of testing into it, and a lot of people like it. So I reached the point where I said, okay, this is is what it is. And that's what people want and like. That's what people download up to this day. So if I want something, I need to do something on my own. And that's how Imperious Domain has started. I didn't think I was going to do a pro- another project. I just said, okay, I'm interested in 30K now. There's a lot of new stuff, and I'm going to make a rule set. And it's not the first time I've done this. Those who've been around for a long time and visit the Nabbit Epic website can see my old heresy rules, which I made back in the day when we were doing that epic. So that desire within me has always existed. The thing is, it became more active in recent years. And I said, okay, I'm going to do a rule set. And I think in passing on one of the Facebook groups, I just happened to mention it. That's where David latched on. And I was like, initially I was taken aback. I was like, you know, this is just something I just <laughs> came up with. You know, who who cares? <laughs> well, apparently David cared. I was posting on TACCOM and got a lot of resistance from people who didn't want anyone messing with NetEpic the way it was written. I was kind of bored of NetEpic at that time. No offense, Peter. It's just that oh, none taken. <laughs> the units themselves and the cars were that interesting anymore with all the new stuff out it's all you know there's only so many combinations of orcs you could field and and i just wanted to upgrade and update everything with all the new stuff and i have i don't know 50 of the codexes and books for reference and all the forge world books and all the cool models in there i wanted to be able to use them in epic and it wasn't happening with that epic because no one would agree on statistics for vehicles if you design them anyway so i decided let's try a new one and unlike net epic when i was designing the rules with my friend for napoleonics we would change things weekly if it didn't work we would keep trying different things and that was our main goal make sure this keep playing testing all these different slight variations of the rules to see which one is the best so i decided well i tried to put up uh information on tech comms and then I started talking to Peter about it, and then we both decided, hey, well, you know, Dave, you got good ideas. I say, Peter, you know how to do all this, like writing up the community and doing all that, and you have good ideas too. Let's combine our efforts and make a new system. Yeah, that's pretty much, I mean, that's that's a good example of how two people from different backgrounds with a common interest and love and epic get together, do something, because what he just described is what I went through. Now, as somebody who once occupied at a physical position within the NetEpic structure. I don't, you, you'll never hear me go with a bad mouth NetEpic. NetEpic is a great set of rules. It has withstood the test of time. It is literally the oldest and most downloaded version of Epic, most played version of Epic, of all the versions of Epic. That's just not me being uh, hyperbolic. 
I mean, uh, as I was discussing with uh, uh, Gordon before uh, we started recording, I used to keep track of download statistics and all that. I mean, Danette Epic is downloaded to this day at a clip that's, you know, very humbling. I mean, people like the rule set. But again, as I mentioned before, one thing is what the community likes and I respect what they like and I provided what they want. But another thing is what I happen to like at that moment, much like David, I had grown, you know, rather weary of the uh, rule set over the year. It was kind of stale. I mean, I've played literally hundreds of games of that epic. So it was time for a change. It was not, I didn't like the epic 40,000 and didn't like epic Armageddon. I didn't like the way you could build units in Armageddon and didn't like the generic firepower stuff. I wanted more specific, like more examples of translating a 40K model or 30K model into epic have the effects. Yeah. And that's why I decided to do like Imperius Dominatus is quite detailed in terms of unit statistics. Well, that's so you can already see where me and David kind of came together and what, without formalizing it, there was an underlying philosophy there, right? We both wanted an epic rule set, a six millimeter rule set that would represent the 40K and 30K universe, but as it is, not as it was. Say what you will, how great the epic community is. We are getting a little bit dated. It's been, I mean, Epic's been around for 32 years, but Epic has not been uh, supported by Games Workshop for 16 years. That's that's a long time, and a lot a lot has happened in 16 years. Not not least of which is the Horus Heresy and, and 30K, which ironically is how Epic started back in the day with first edition, and then the second edition kind of morphed into a more 40K centric kind of game. So we both wanted the same thing. I know. Epic Armageddon's been used, played a lot by people, but for myself, my collection, I can't even put on a tenth of my models with one battle because it's so small. Right. So I said, that's not the game system I want to play. I want to be able to use lots of models. And Armageddon doesn't accommodate that. If it gets too big, it gets broken. So, yeah. So basically, you have two people that saw eye to eye on very basic things. A, we wanted a modern, 40, uh, modern representation of what the game is as of today. Two, we wanted a real mass combat game going back to its roots that would scale at any amount of points. So even if consciously I and David at the very beginning when we were getting to know each other didn't know it, me having a little bit of experience with, you know, according to Amy, and that, we knew we were laying a philosophical groundwork. And I guess we're, we're leading into the next question, which is yeah. what is Imperius Dominatus and what defines it and how is it different or similar to previous games. Now, one thing David and I were in agreement from the very beginning was that we were going to be very open-minded. We were not going to partialize ourselves with any one system. All systems had very good subsystems within them, and in some cases, very uh, imaginative and very fun. So we sat down and kind of said, okay, what is what everybody liked about each thing, you know, like each version? What epic mechanics are like universally by regardless of what edition you play what people liked and it was very easy to answer some things and like for first of all we use the army card system from second edition because from the feedback of people who play diverse kind of uh editions they liked how easy that was and it is easy you need no pencil you need no paper you just need a bunch of cards yeah and that's a game within the game itself. Huh? I mean, how many Epic fans have sat down, not even playing the game, and you just threw the cards out on the table, the floor, and made up armies? 
just made up. I said, okay, look, this looks interesting. I'll try this in this next game. That is very engaging. And those are the kind of things that uh, David and I were looking at when we made appearance. What is engaging? What people like? And that's one example. I mean, that's a great example because my pal, he talks about it quite a lot about that's that's part of his resistance to, to other systems because he, he loved that little sub game, if you like, of just throwing the cards down. And it was so simple and intuitive that it was like, okay, you get one company card, one special card and up to five support cards. Brilliant. You know, it was really simple and it was a great system. So, yeah, I thought that was really a smart thing to to latch on to as part of Pedis Dominatus. Another thing we tried to do was streamline time-consuming rules. Mm-hmm. Things that used to be take a lot of time to figure out in that epic that would slow the game down. For example, hot swipe guns, uh, barrage templates, uh, anything that revolved rolling more, than, more dice, like scatter dice, hit locations things that would cause problems with people to target units because template on or off, all that stuff we try to avoid and clean up to make the game flow a smoother way. And we have this post pinned to the uh, Imperius Dominus webpage, which is Imperius Dominus' design philosophy, which you covered. And what uh, David just expressed is what we call simplicity. Now, simplicity doesn't mean simple and boring. It just means streamlined. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to eliminate what a lot of Epic players normally did of having to look up stuff. Nobody has perfect recall. And nobody really likes having too many subsystems within one rule set. So Imperius Dominatus made everything on a baseline level. That means a Titan follows the same rules as the infantryman, which we all know from diverse Epic rule sets, it's always an issue. How do you make that something flavorful and, and interesting and engaging, but without this extra shell and subsystems of rules. So we did that with basically everything. We wanted one unified system. That means the same way you shoot for the infantry stand is the same way you shoot for the Titan. The same way damage is resolved for that for the first is also resolved on the latter and everything else in between. And the way we did it was that we designed a basic rule set mechanic, but then we gave the flavor by adding on the different abilities and, and they're not special rules. They're just something you tack onto a unit to make it different from other units, but they still all follow the same. They have the same stat line. They use the same dice. And I guess we're now going to go into the next question, which is why the D10? <laughs> <laughs> so Gordon asked a question about why we change from D6s to D10s. I consider dice as a tool, and the tool with more variance or more randomness allows to create more interesting and more detailed points of interest. For example, one to six is 17% or 16.5% chance per pip. One to 10 is 10% chance. You can do more with a D10 than you can do more with it than a D6. That was interesting. That was it. That's basically what you've heard on the internet called granularity. The D10 has more granularity than the D6, but it just goes beyond that the T10 has four more faces than the D6. There are some practical considerations here. People think in decimal. So it's easier to count by 10. Everybody knows how to count by 10, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. It's less easy to count in sixes or in in that probability line. So that's one thing. And if you notice a trend, again, it goes back to simplicity. We want people to have to remember the less uh, and look up the less possible things during gaming time because gaming time is precious. So we have to cut out everything that's not, you know, directly related to the fun. 
So, but the D10 does something really important that me and David realized very quickly. And I will give very practical examples that everybody that's played the Epic game knows. When you have a D6, it is very difficult to differentiate units from one another. How many Epic rule sets where you basically have infantry and vehicles have the same save value or to hit value or any of the other values in the game? Case in point, net Epic Tactical Marines. Big whoop. They're not impressive at all. Right. Because in second edition, nobody has saves. You shoot them, they die. Sure, the calf is different. But again, one thing is difference. And one thing is statistical. In other words, meaningful difference when you play. A lot of differences in many of the epic rule sets are not meaningful in the field of play. So a D10 gives you the spread enough to have that meaningful impact. But the really good thing about the D10 is we eliminated a lot of extra rules. When you have less granularity, as in the D6, you have to make up rules because if two units have similar stats, and one's infantry and one vehicle, how do you tell, tell them apart on the field play? Well, you make rules for them. Then you get into anti-personnel or armor piercing. And we all know for our preferred epic rule sets of the older ones, what degree these rules can become. And sometimes they become quite dancing. Sometimes they become even contradictory. Or sometimes they just become confusing, hard to remember because of specific things that happen to the game. One thing, too, was um, the hit rolls of a 7+. plus in net epic that's just bad game design that you have to roll d6 and then roll four or five or six depends exactly like the probabilities of that number of 2d6 is so screwed up yep compared to a straight dice and there's a psychological component there because when we design imperius nominatus it's not all the things we talk about simplicity we don't want you to look up things we want it to be engaging and, and the term me and david use a lot is tension Things that create tension in a game are good. Things that detract from them are bad. And what Jesus described is a good example of this because players instinctively know what's advantageous and what's not. So basically telling somebody that a seven to hit or something, you have to roll another dice, is so difficult that what's the end result? The end result is that you don't do it. And the contrary to that, if it makes it so easy to hit in that case, then you do it all the time and then you run into balance issues. So the D10... It has a chain effect. It, it not only adds more variety, but it gets rid of more exception-based design. Game design, too, was also the fact we want players to have fun. Is it fun? That was a question we always asked. Should we allow a player to try to do this? Yes, we could let them do it. If they need a 10 to do it, well, they'll still try, but who cares? They, we let them do it. So we never tried to prevent or create rules that didn't let players try to do something. We just had, gave them bad odds to do it, but could still do it if they got lucky. And even if the odds were bad, they were still infinitely better than the odds, just from a purely numerical level than what a D6 would allow you to. Because that also ties into like the uh, bonuses and penalties. And D6-based D6 design, really the only thing that can tolerate is plus one, plus two, just from a statistical point of view. The problem is that in D6-based design, you see a lot of plus twos and even more. A plus two or a negative two on a D6 is the same thing as saying you're going to fail or you're always going to succeed. And that detracts tension, like I mentioned before, because if you know something is not like, not, not only not likely, but you know, very likely to be almost impossible, the player will do it because you only have a finite amount of actions within a game as well as a finite amount of time. And people want the things that they do, the roles that they make to be meaningful. Curiously enough, the plus two, negative two works perfectly on a D10 
just because it has a better probability spread. So it has more meaning in those things. And like David said, yeah, something might be really difficult, but there are certain circumstances in the game that give me get bonuses that make it less hard. But there's nothing that's impossible or there's nothing that's a gimme because everything's been spread out on a continuum that lets players try and nothing seems impossible, improbable, yes, or less probable, more probable, but not impossible. So removing the no, because that's what a lot of game design is, no and yes. We wanted to remove the no by making the yes viable, but not all the yeses were uh, probable. But you let the player decide, okay, I'm going to take that risk because maybe it's only a 20%, but hey, if I if it happens to go through, great. Not the inferior single digits or sometimes even less probability that the same situation in other game systems with D6 would allow. So we thought about all these things because a game design is not just the meat and potatoes of the mechanics. People play games and people have uh, specific ways to react to things. It's one key design feature of Imperius Dominatus that we figure out early on that's very different from the traditional epic games. And traditional epic games, to hit is the thing. What I mean by that is that to hit in second edition, first edition, Epic 40K, EA, that's the end all be all because the hitting is the difficult part. Once you get that hurdle, yes, there might be armor saves, but from a probabilistic point of view, the survival rate is not very high. Just six second edition, for example. The average to hit is a five, right? I mean, in fact, 90% of the units in the game hit with a five plus which in itself is kind of bad design, but it serves to illustrate the point. So what does that tell you? It means that you're going to just hit 32% of the times, roughly 33% of the time. If you add a neg one to that, it drops by half 16. If you put a neg two on it, you're already in the extra reroll that David and the probabilities there are a single digit, low single digits. The problem with that is that people, when they roll, players like rolling dice and feeling they're doing something when they roll dice. If they're rolling dice, how many times have we played games and people roll dice is like, oh, yeah, that was a wasted roll. That was a waste of time. We don't want people to feel that way. So to follow that logic there, Peter, what we did in ID that was different from all previous games is that we gave an army to hit roll. So the whole army fires every single gun at the same hit chance. They fight in close combat at the same hit chance. So different armies could have the same gun, but they might not shoot or hit as well with it. So that's way to show that force these forces are elite compared to regular forces so imperial guard and space marines space marines hit better shoot better fight better than the average imperial guard troop that is important it costs more points for these troops but they're going to do more damage and they will be much more consistent fighting and table they'll be harder to take out so that's a, that's an interesting point before like thunder or cannons and that epic everything was a different hit chance not the not an id Basically, what we said was that the army, due to its training and morale, would more or less have a certain degree of accuracy. So why? Ha I mean, the, it's not the weapon that's accurate. It's the fire that's accurate. And if the fire is a Marine, what difference does it make what he's shooting? He's going to be equally good or equally bad, depending on the race. So, And more importantly, you just got to remember one row. Yeah, that was about, I was about to say that was, for me, as somebody that has uh, problems with their memory <laughs> for some of the stat things, I thought that was a really genius move that it meant no matter what was firing, whether it was infantry, vehicles, or, or whatever. Well, yeah, no, yeah, th those are things that perhaps people don't think of, but that's important stuff. I mean, people's time is valuable. So you want, when you play a game, you want to spend the time in what produces the most amount of fun. Looking up stuff, to proceed a game is not 
necessarily funny. You know, it detracts from the experience as well as perhaps using valuable time you could uh, use having fun playing the game. That's why the cards are handy too, because they have the data lines on them too. Exactly. Now, going back to what I was point I was making, and Imperius Dominatus hitting is easy. That's why we give you so many uh, attack dice to do it with. Why? Because people feel engaged when they're rolling dice. Look, I'm getting hit. I'm getting hits. In normal Epic games from the previous editions, hitting was hard. You missed a lot. And that also engenders a sense in people's like, well, you know, oh, look, I, I fired my Lehman Rust attachment. I didn't get any hits. What a waste. And people may not verbalize it that way, but that's how they feel. Yeah, they feel frustrated. Yeah, They feel frustrated, right? And how many times you see people take, oh, this that. This guy is bad luck, you know, gamers. We're, we're all <laughs> uh, that, oh, let me change the color. That's it. Uh, yeah, not, not that that matters, but that's what we do. We all do that. And ID, we said, okay, we're going to switch the emphasis from hitting to making the save. Now, this has a dual purpose. Number one, you get the psychological gratification of hitting because you never feel like you're wasting shots because it's very rare in the periods I mean, it's not to get hits. If hits is one thing, casualties is another. And previous Epic Games, hitting was almost equal to casualties because the armor, uh, the way the armor systems are made, the saves were either uh, too small to matter and the uh, save modifiers too big to basically nullify them. So there was a very little difference between, like, like in second edition, for example, you hit infantry stands, they're dead, right? They don't have a save. So what difference does it make? A hit equals kill. Against the vehicles, that would depend on the save, but the saves weren't that great. Save four, save five, sometimes a save at six. So in this case, I took 40K rules. So a Marine firing in Marine would have to hit, they would have to do a wound roll, and they would have to do an armor save. So basically, that's why an ID Marine has a six-plus armor save on a D10 for an infantry stand, which is unheard of anywhere before. But that means they can actually survive 50% of normal shots. And important, more importantly, they act like Marines. That's tough. Like that's a tough unit for infantry stand. That's as tough as like a light vehicle. And of course, they will behave on the tabletop because that's the other one of our philosophies. You want things to behave on the tabletop like you imagine them to be. Because that's all we do when we play with our little soldiers, isn't it? We imagine we're we're the commander in there, and oh, look at this guy. They're shooting at them. We kind of imagine in our heads what's going on in like a mini story. So. It's sometimes disappointing or disheartening when the rules don't kind of meet up your expectation in your head. And how many uh, conversations have we had over the year that this unit's not worth it, or these Marines uh, who will take tacticals, for example, which is a common one in, in second edition, and, and so on and so forth. ID <laughs> eliminates that. Yeah, that's why I said it, because I know you say it all the time. <laughs> that's what ID eliminated now. Now, granted, your Marines are much more expensive and will be outnumbered by Imperial Guard or Orc analogous units because that's the name of the game. You get good stuff, but you will be outnumbered most of the time. And again, that's a very 40K, 30K kind of feel, right? Uh, Marines are always outnumbered, but you know they're so badasses that they can take on many times their number. And this is where David's work was crucial, see? One big criticism, Criticism I've always had at Games Workshop of all their rules, this is 40K, whatever. They do not have a systematic way to give stats to units and to cost them. And I'll let David explain what that means. So the use of a D10 behind the scenes and design-wise was extremely important. In the 7th edition, 40K and 30K, 
they had armor values of vehicles. They started at 14, and that would be for like Land Raider, and a bike would have an armor 10. And anything under that that we use toughness. Again, that's a D6 based system. So you have 14, 13, 12, 11, 10. That's basically five pips. And the Iksha had uh, 15 armor in a um, Armageddon book for a Warlord Titan. So that's six pips of armor I could do on a D10. So, and then we have Carapace armor, we have Flak armor, we have Chitin. So I decided, well, how can I represent infantry, different types of infantry armor, different types of vehicle armor, and different toughnesses for creatures? So Mega Gargants and stuff are very, very tough. If you use mechanics from 40k, you have to wound them. So the wounding them at the high toughness they have is like a form of armor because it's harder to hurt them. So I incorporated modifiers to armor based on toughness and the armor values from 7th edition, translated them into ID. I also used hit BR, which is damage resolution or damage points, from balancing 8th edition and 7th edition statistics for all the vehicles. I took the movement values of 8th edition, because in 7th they used to use initiative. I took those values from 8th edition to determine how fast the troops would move in ID. And I have charts for all movement speeds. So there's a combination of many types of rule systems to get to the stats where ID are at right now. I think it worked out really well, though. Yeah. Well, uh, and the, po the point is that unlike what most of the time rule sets in with GW are, David actually did a repeatable, systematic conversion of what things look like in 40K and 30K into ID rules. And the importance of that is that not only is it repeatable, right? You know, I'm not just pulling stats out of the air. I said, oh, yeah, I think you, you should have a stat of this. No, everything. Anything you give, any, any new thing comes out, I can make a stat for it, follow my formula. Exactly. And more importantly, they get costed in an equivalent manner. Because the thing is not what units cost. The thing is that everybody has their stats evaluated the same and applied the same. Because there is no difference in saying, okay, and, and the Pierce Domain ad is a tactical company's worth 750, you're saying it's worth 500. In that sense, the numbers don't have meaning in and of themselves. But what David did was, since he ported over everything in specific, uh, repeatable, systematic quantities, everybody gets the same treatment. That means if this is worth 750, something like it will be worth 750, and something lesser will be less, will be worth less, and something better will be worth more. And that's very important because that is one of the cornerstones to balance in a game. And how many times have we basically complained in all epic versions that this one's undervalued or this one's overvalued? How many times have we heard in epic games where, oh, this unit has no use? Well, usually it has no use either because the stats don't really represent what it could do or the cost is off. And therefore, players being players will gravitate towards what they think is a better deal, a lesser deal. And Period of Dominatus did away with that. Since everybody is giving things on an equal footing, that means there's value anywhere you look. And all that's left is the tactical value that you as a player give them. There's no wasted units. There's no, oh, this doesn't work as well as that. Because if something doesn't work as well as that, that means that in our system, it costs less. Therefore, you can bring more, making it impactful in that manner. Like, you know, quantity is is his quality of his own, so to speak. And on the other end, you have, oh, well, I don't get a lot of these, but they're very powerful. But the genius of what David did was that it was equitable. You know, it's equivalent. 
if I port over this Marine to here, it is always worth this in Imperius Dominatus. If I import this Orc over here, that is what is worth because its stats relative to the first are different. And like I said, it's not the value, it's the application of the value. And our application of the value was equal across the board to all units. So that in and of itself uh, guarantees that, that you'll have balance in it. And everybody wants a, le a level playing field, right? Mm. I mean, how many times you've played where, you know, yo, you're bringing that unit, which everybody kind of knows is a little bit undervalued for the potency he has in game. We did away with that doing this system. And I think that's a very important thing that we give a lot of thought to. And, you know, we don't bore people with like the numbers behind all this, but there are numbers behind it. There's hit ratios, kill ratios, all these stuff. They sometimes blather about the table when we talk about game design. Oh, it takes a long time to figure it all out too yeah but that's important because marines are really accurate right so that means their attack dice will get more hits and the more hits the more probability you have to inflict armor saves which means the more probability you will fail armor saves or make armor saves and that's the kill ratio so we did all those calculations for you you, ne you never need to see these in games but you will feel the effect of them in, in game because that's how the units will behave and we're very cognizant of that and that's like the base system. And, and by the way, as uh, David mentioned before, there are no subsystems here. Artillery works the same way as shooting. Close combat works the same way as shooting. Yes, there are nuances in all of those things because we know that they have a different role, right? When you play the game. But that doesn't mean because they have a different role and impact, I have to make different subsystems for you, the player, to remember. I don't want you to remember stuff. I want you to play the game and have fun. The whole point is to make it fun and to try and get rid of power gaming type of things. Yeah, we, we, we think a lot about that. So, for example, a Warlord Titan with a Vortex Missile or a Warp Missile. If you could always just pick one of those, those things are just nasty. They're not much fun to play against because they pretty much, if they hit, they'd kill you. Yeah. So I made a random chart for what kind of missile you get. Supply line, whatever, you know, stuff like that. That's the other thing. What he's pointing out is something that's lore a lot of the stuff we do is not only for the balance and, and the gaming aspects of it, but we found ourselves in lore as well. And in, in lore, you don't get to just say, oh, okay, somebody put a Vortex missile on my Titan. Those are things are rare. And only like high-level princeps get that Stein and stuff. Now, maybe at some point we'll introduce some kind of experience system, you know, so if you, for people who like that as an optional add-on. But for now, the table that David mentioned is good enough. It's like, well, do you have the pull, uh, a.k.a. the luck to get on the dice, the specific one you want? Well, there you go. But you got to pay for the points and then you got to live with the result you get. Because as as in real life, you know, sometimes you don't get all you want. But we always think about these because, look, players are players. They're always trying to try to get the best out of what they design. So we have to look at everything we do and say, well, how exploitable is it? Now, granted, not everything is going to be as exploit proofs as you want, but you can, through design, mitigate at least what would be more onerous or egregious and at least keep that under a very low probability that if somebody wants to try it, like we said, we want you to say yes, not no, you try. But you know going in that there's a, different, there's a difference in the probability of trying different things. Everything in the game, from the numbers to the stats and everything, we made a very tight parameters. So, for example, you won't see to hits inferior to four, right? Because if you got bonuses of plus two, anything inferior, that is basically saying you auto hit. 
in the same manner, we don't have stats on the higher end of the die because we know if you introduce uh, penalties, that'll be uh, impossible. So, a 10 will always hit. You can never, a 10 will always hit. Yeah, no matter what you like. And then we have a rule, which is actual rule, the rule of twos. No matter what bonuses or penalties the rules or your abilities may may give you, they cannot stack more than plus two in one way or negative two in the other. Easy to remember. So you don't have to be figuring out, oh, will this apply? Does this stack? I mean, how many times have you asked this playing Epic in any version? Does this stack with this? Uh, is this compatible with that? We, we don't want you guys to do any of that. So we just kept it really simple. We know that there's a wide variety of different abilities that can give you a lot of different bonuses and or penalties to whatever's going on in the game. But at the end, you know, plus two, minus two. That's it. You go over it. If you add them all up and you went over two and anybody could count the two, one, two, one, two, either way, that's it. And that's the other one of our philosophies at a glance. At a glance means exactly what it says. We want all the information of the game to be as visually accessible as possible. We don't want you to have to remember anything. We don't want you to have to look up anything. So as you go through the mechanics, you will find that literally everything is just looking at something, either your dice or at a table, which we made reference sheets for at the orders or at your army card, which we also put as much information as we could on that as well. All in, in an attempt to reduce as much lookup time as possible. Because again, time is finite and time is precious. We, and all the time you spend on ID, we want it to be fun. We don't want you to look up stuff. And although also the time to design it. It's only it's only Peter and myself doing this, so we can't cover everything. We we try to make it as hundred percent accurate or as good as we can. But Peter has got a lot of playtesters looking for bugs and looking for unbalanced things. And that's important too. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's only as good as the people who play it at. We've had a lot of feedback. And it's a question for a little bit later, so I'll I'll cut it there. But yes. <laughs> And that's where we're also cutting the conversation for the moment. Thanks again to Peter and David for joining us and rest assured that we'll conclude this discussion in the next installment of the Life or Die podcast. Thanks again to all our listeners. And if you're new and like what you've heard, please do consider subscribing or following us wherever you've found us to ensure you don't miss an episode. But until then, keep on living the Life of Die. <laughs>